We are in our series uh, that we started last week. It's called Gods of War, and it's called Defeating the Idols that Battle for Our Hearts. So we pretty much did an introduction last week, but if you weren't here last week, or if you were here and your memory's a little fuzzy, let me remind you of what we were talking about last week. We talked about the first two commandments. You remember those stone tablets that Moses came down from Mount Sinai and gave to the uh, God's people as they were already breaking the first two commandments and worshiping the golden calf? Uh, I I refer you to Exodus chapter 32 in uh, the Hebrew scriptures if you want to check that out for yourself uh, to say how they broke the commandments. But the first commandment is this, that we are to have no other gods but God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is to not make any other gods to worship. Don't make, don't create, don't grab and and apply for yourself any other gods, anything that would take the place of God in your life and live for that. And when you say, well, wait a minute, I I don't have any idols in my home. I don't have any statues or little something that I set up. I don't have any shrines over here in the corner of my living room that I bow down to and worship. And I just want to remind you uh, the definition of an idol because it's not necessarily something physical. Tim Keller says this about idols. He says, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and your self-worth, that thing is essentially an idol. It's something you are actually worshiping because you're living for that. When you wake up in the morning, that's what you're thinking about. When you go to bed at night, that's what you worry about. When you think, if this thing were taken away from me, I just don't know how I could go on living. Whatever that is, if that is not God, then that for sure is an idol in your life. So the question that you could ask yourself is, what is so important? What is so important to you that you just cannot live without? In the New Testament, it was the Apostle John at the end of his letter that that reminded us. He says, little children, and he could say it because he was an old man by then. Little children, he said, keep yourselves from idols. So as we get into the message today, we're going to talk about one of the worst idols, one of the greatest idols that battles for supremacy in our own hearts, and that that is the idol of pride. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to humble ourselves before you because one of the commands in your word says to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In fact, Lord, when I read that, it always reminds me of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan where Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, you can have all this as long as you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, nope, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Lord, that's a great command, and most days in our lives, we do pretty well at that, but Lord, there are days when other things creep in. So, Father, we pray that you'll reveal to us today what are, what are some things in our life, what are some values or priorities that we have that might be battling for supremacy in our lives. Help us to keep those things down, keep them in the right perspective, and keep you as the number one priority, the number one thing that we are living for today and in all the days ahead. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, according to Exodus 20, what Moses said. 
Uh, God is not tolerant, and then, you know, you talk about a, in the age of tolerance that we live in, you know, they talk about being PC, being politically correct. One of the greatest values that we have in our society today is this idea of tolerance, this idea of, of you need to tolerate all ideas. Well, one of the things about our God that, it, that might be interesting to some people to learn is that God is not tolerant of certain things. He's certainly not tolerant of any idol in our lives. He demands our exclusive worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Another translation of that we talked about was, you shall not have any other gods in my presence, God says. So today we're talking about the number one idol in our lives, whether we're men or women, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're black or white or Latino or Asian. And this is the idol of pride. C.S. Lewis wrote this about pride. He said, the Christians are right. It is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So I want to talk today about two examples of pride in the Bible. One of the, the first example I'm going to talk about is pretty obscure. The second example is of a human king uh, from the Old Testament scriptures uh, I know there's plenty of other examples of pride, but today I'm just going to focus on two of them. The first one, <clears throat> the first one that we're going to talk about pride is we refer to the chief enemy of our souls. The chief enemy of our souls, he goes by the name of Satan, the devil, the accuser, the father of lies. Jesus called him the dragon in the book of Revelation. You can go to chapter 12 if you want to read about him. But here's the thing about Satan, and this is what is so sad and tragic about Satan and about certain people who follow the pathway of Satan in their lives by living for pride, by making pride the number one thing that, they're, that is important to them, that they're living for. You see, Satan was not always evil and destructive. God, who created all things by his powerful word, in fact, says God spoke and the universe sprang into existence. When God created all those things, he created this beautiful, amazing archangel, and he gave him the name. Does anybody know what his name was back in the day? It's in the King James Bible. It starts with the letter L. It's Lucifer. That's right. In Isaiah, in the King James Version, in Isaiah 14, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? You or thou which didst weaken the nations. In Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 28, Lucifer is described in this way. He says, you were the model of perfection. So now we're talking about Satan before he was Satan the devil. Satan, while well, he was a beautiful archangel created by God. He was Lucifer. In this state, this is the way he is described. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. In fact, you go to the, the scripture there and it talks about nine different precious stones, all colors of the rainbow that were given as clothing to Lucifer. It said they were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic garden, guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God. You walked among the, sto the stones of fire. And you jump down to verse 15. It says, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created 
until, and this is one of the biggest words in that sentence, until, because what happened? What changed this beautiful archangel named Lucifer into the terrible, ugly, hideous devil that we know today? He says, you were blameless until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. And so I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from the place among the stones of fire. Why? Because, verse 17, your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. And so I threw you to the ground. Go back to Isaiah, and Isaiah continues describing Satan. He says, how you, are, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth. You've been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, and this is the attitude. Think of the attitude of anybody who would have this attitude. This is what puts you at enmity with God. This is what takes you away from worshiping the Lord our God and serving Him only. It's this attitude. It says, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens. I will be like the most high. Indeed, you will be brought down to the place of the dead. You will be brought down to its lowest depths. So there's the judgment of God on, on Lucifer. He had become so filled with pride, he decided that he wanted to take over heaven. So what is the original sin? When, you, when you, you read these two passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, what can you conclude? Here's the point. The original sin, before sin ever entered the world, the very first sin was not by human beings in Adam and Eve. The very first sin in the universe came from Lucifer, and the sin was pride trying to throw off God's authority, trying to become like God yourself, trying to become your own God. As Proverbs 16 in verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So there's the origin of pride in the universe. It came from an archangel, a mighty archangel who was beautiful in appearance but he got so full of himself, he wanted to take over heaven. He wanted to take over God. So now that we've talked about Satan and that original sin of pride, let's go on and talk about the king that I mentioned. Remember, we're trying to, to defeat idols that battle for our heart. And the biggest battle that we're going to have in our lives is over this sin of pride. Now, the king that I'm referring to this morning, he was a mighty king. He was not a king of Israel. He was not a king of Judah. He was a pagan king. And God allowed him, in his providence, God allowed this king to conquer the nation of Israel about 600 years before Christ. This king was proud and self-sufficient, and God warned him that everything he had, everything that God had given him, because God allowed him to have it, that this king would lose everything if he would not humble himself before God. His name? It's a 14-letter name. It's five syllables. I dare you to spell it with your eyes closed right now. Nebuchadnezzar is his name. I used to say Nebuchadnezzar just to try to, to get the pronunciation uh, and the spelling. But Nebuchadnezzar is the name of this king. <clears throat> and he was a great king. 
in his day of the great Babylonian empire that in that day, 600 years before Christ, took over the whole ancient world in the Near East. His people treated Nebuchadnezzar as if he were a god. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't seem to mind their adoration. He didn't seem to resist their accolades very much. His word was law. So I want to show you a few examples of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and how not to fall into these kind of traps. The first indication in which we know that Nebuchadnezzar was falling into pride and it is happening all in the book of Daniel. So from now on in the, in the message, if you want to refer to it in your own scriptures or you can look up on the screen and follow here, we're going to be in the book of Daniel, chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Now the first way in which Nebuchadnezzar fell into pride was this, not, number one, not giving God the glory. So if you have your programs, you can fill in the blank right there. Not giving God the glory. One sure sign of pride is this. When something great happens to you, when you have an amazing accomplishment, when you realize that when you start to think it was you who did it all, when you are the one who was responsible for everything that happened, by not giving God the glory for what you have in your hand, think about it. Think about our lives and think about, you know, what can we really be proud of when you, when you think about it? You didn't choose your genetics. You didn't choose your own IQ. You didn't choose the country you were born in. You didn't get to choose who your parents were or the family you were born into. You didn't choose the unique opportunities that you were given in this life all throughout your youth, all throughout your young adulthood. Those were all decided by somebody other than you. They, those things that happened to you and the family you were born in and the time you were born in and your genetics and your IQ, all that depended and was decided by God for you in his providence. Now, doesn't that, that doesn't mean that everything in life was handed you on a silver spoon because you did have to respond. You did have to do something with the gifts God gave you. And some of you have excelled in certain fields. Uh, you had some good sense or you had good advice. You had an opportunity before you and you seized that opportunity. You didn't let it slip away. And so, yes, I, I admit, we have to recognize that there is a mixture of your own effort combined with God's providence and his opportunities and his guidance for you to be able to accomplish all that you've accomplished. What I think is what we need is a right balance between the, the effort that we give and what God has provided for us and the opportunities that he's presented before us. How do we find the right balance? I found this scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the apostle Paul is talking about himself and he's talking about his ministry. And this is what Paul says, because I think Paul found the right balance between the idea of God working in Paul and also Paul working hard for God. Look what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this about himself, for I am the least of all the apostles. Paul was not happy with his past. He was not proud of his past. He was a persecutor of the church. He says, in fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. You know, I often wonder what it was like for Paul as he walked into a synagogue or he walked into a church, uh, a gathering of Christ's people, and there could be perhaps the widows, there could be family members of people in the church whom Paul persecuted and how Paul felt in moments like that. 
But Paul says this, but whatever I am now, even though I'm the least of all the apostles, whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor, which is another word for grace, on me. God poured out his grace on me and not without results. So now Paul's saying, this is what God has given to me by his grace. And this is how now I respond to the grace of God in my life. He says, for I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. And yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. He recognized that God was working through him all the time by his grace. Paul recognizes he never would have become an apostle of Christ apart from God's calling on his life. In fact, he was going the exact opposite direction from God when God called him on the road to Damascus. Jesus had chosen Saul to become Paul, and then he called Paul to be his ambassador to the Gentiles and the Roman empires. So can you see the wise blend? Can you see the blend here with what Paul is highlighting? He's saying, look, all that I am now, it's because God poured out his grace on me. But then he also says, and in response to that grace, I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. Charles Stanley said this in commenting about Paul and and this combination of God's grace in his life and Paul's own effort. Charles Stanley says this, anything worthwhile that we accomplish for God is done in obedience to him through the guidance and the empowering of his Holy Spirit. Paul was zealous for Christ before Christ. Paul was zealous, excuse me, let me say it the right way. Paul was zealous for God, but he had his understanding of God wrong. But he was zealous for God before he ever became a follower of Christ, right? And now he took that same zeal and he's working for God now instead of against God. So now now that we've sort of got a balance, okay, God, you've given me these amazing gifts. You've poured out your grace, your special favor on me. Now you want me to take these gifts, to take the opportunities you present before me and use them to advance your kingdom. I need to work in tandem. I need to work in collaboration with God. And when anything good happens, instead of trying to say, hey, look what I did, say, God, look what you did through me. Look what you did in me, and now look what you glory to you, are accomplishing through me. So let's go back to King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's let's go back to an example of a person whom God poured out this mighty favor on, and yet this guy didn't get it. He didn't understand that everything he had came from God. He didn't understand that every good and perfect gift comes from above. He didn't stop and give God the glory when good was happening to him. In In Daniel chapter 2, this King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and no one can interpret the dream for him. He, and, and he decided this, and this is really interesting. He tested his enchanters and his magicians and his astrologers. And, and because what they said was, well, King, if you had a dream, please tell us what the dream is, and we'll interpret it for you. Right? It's a lot easier to interpret something that somebody already tells you. And the king says, well, you know what? I'll tell you something. I know the dream I had, but I'm not telling you what the dream was. You tell me the dream I had, and then you tell me how I'm supposed to interpret it. And you know what they said? They said, no one, sorry, king, no one except the gods can tell you what your dream was, and they do not live among people. And King Nebuchadnezzar gets pretty ticked off at this point. He gets really angry with these astrologers and magicians and enchanters. And in his great anger, King Nebuchadnezzar, he orders that all the wise men in Babylon are to be executed. That's it. You guys are worthless. 
I have a dream and I need to know what it means. I'm not telling you the dream. You tell me the dream. And well, nobody can do that. Nobody except the gods, king, and he did, they don't live among the people. He didn't know about Jesus was coming 600 years later, did he? So Daniel and his three friends, they hear about it because now they're put in this camp of the magicians and astrologers and wise men, and they know their heads are literally on the chopping block themselves. And so Daniel prays with his friends. They organize a prayer meeting like we did on Thursday night. And that night, this is awesome about God, God revealed the secret of the king's dream to Daniel. So Daniel, who's still a very young man, he's probably a teenager at this point, he goes before the great king of Babylon and the king asks him a question. He, says, he said, Belshazzar, or whatever, Belteshazzar, whatever the Babylonian name for Daniel was. But he says, can, is it true? Can you tell me what my dream was? And can you tell me what my dream means? And Daniel says this, and this is interesting. Notice Daniel's humility. Because he's not, even though Daniel had this amazing gift of being able to not only know what the dream is, but know the right, proper interpretation by God, by his revelation for what the dream is, look at Daniel's humility versus the king's pride, right? Daniel says this, there are no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians or fortune tellers who can tell the king such things. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. And so Daniel interprets the king's dream. And the king is so impressed and so grateful that he makes Daniel one of the biggest, most powerful rulers over the entire province of Babylon. Now, you would think by seeing God's power there through his prophet Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar would have said, wow, God is God. Daniel's God is the most high God. He is God and I am not. I, I, need to, I need to check my pride right here. Did Nebuchadnezzar do it? No, not yet. Still had a way to go in the, in the pathway of humility. So let's see the second area in which Nebuchadnezzar fell into pride. And now that's number two, not rejecting the glory of men. Number two, a uh, way in which Nebuchadnezzar fell was not rejecting the glory of men. So we go on to Dan Daniel chapter 3. And you remember Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did you know that they were not, those three names were not their original names? They were the Babylonian names given to them. I mean, I only know from Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God was there, he never let them go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? But what were their, what were their Hebrew names? Well, they were, they were, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? And they're all names that basically mean something about praise and honor to God and giving God the glory. So these three friends of Daniel, they also, they're, they're elevated. Daniel's, Daniel was a rising star, and those three friends that he had with him from Israel, these three young men, they were also rising in the, in the province of Babylon. Well, Daniel chapter 3 comes around, Nebuchadnezzar and all his <clears throat> humility, De Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what, let's build a 90-foot statue of gold, and let's make, the, let's make the image look like me, King Nebuchadnezzar, and let's Let's have a big commemor commemoration of this statue, and we're going to invite everybody who's anybody in the whole kingdom, we're going to invite them to this event. So Nebuchadnezzar invites him to the big event for the dedication of this, of this big gold statue. Remember what uh, it says in the Old Testament about the commandments. Don't make any graven images. Don't make anything in the image of anything because whatever you make, that can become your idol. The people will start worshiping that instead of God. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, he's already uh, off the deep end in this, in this area, and so they make the 90-foot statue, and here's the rule. Everybody is gathered there. At the sound of the music, everybody has to bow down and worship the king's golden statue, which, by the way, looks like the king. In fact, it, it, the way it's described, it sort of reminds me of this giant Oscar statue, you know, from the Academy Awards. So, um, of course, the good Jewish boys, these three guys, uh, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they already know what God's command says about this, that you shall not make an idol of any kind. You shall never bow down or worship any idol. And so, uh, true to their faith, they say before the king, we're not bowing down to the idol. So they refuse to bow down, and the king gets really angry with them. That's sort of a mild way of saying how ticked off he was. He was furious, furious that no one would bow down to this golden image. So he says to them, and, that, and I will give Nebuchadnezzar credit for this, because he does give them one more chance. And this is interesting. So this is like, you know, your faith is on the line. You're either going to live or you're going to die based upon your answer to this question. Okay, can you imagine being in that, in that situation? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods, that you refuse to worship the gold idol, that the gold, sorry, the gold statue, that was my word, not, not his, the gold statue that I've set up? And he says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse you're going to be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then, and, and catch this one, and I highlighted it. And then what God, think of the arrogance of this king, what God would be able to rescue you from my power, my power. So they gave him the, they gave him he gave them the ultimatum. You hear the pride of this man, Nebuchadnezzar. You guys know the rest of the story. You know, they said, hey, king, our God is able to save us anytime he wants to. But even if he doesn't save us right here and right now, we're still not going to bow down to your golden image and your, and your golden statue. We're not going to do it, king. And so then he gets super angry, has the blazing furnace heated up seven more times, throws them into the fire, and they don't die. In fact, they not only don't die, now they're walking around the fire and King Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire and he says, hey, didn't we throw three guys in the fire? Yeah, yeah, sure did, King. Well, why are there four men walking around? There's three of them and then there's this other guy and he looks like a son of the gods. So he says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out of the fire, right? Servants of the... And now, now look, at his, look what he says now. He says, three men, now servants of the Most High God come out. Come out here. And the three came out of the fire. They were unharmed, weren't even a little burned, didn't even have the smoky smell on their, on their clothes. And Nebuchadnezzar says this. He says, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command, and they were willing to die rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, here, here's how God is making himself known, not in Israel, but way far away from Israel, while the Israelites were in exile in the Babylonian Empire in front of a pagan king. And he's acknowledging that their God is the most high God, right? He didn't become a monotheist, but at least he said, hey, your God is the most powerful God. And I have to recognize that. Now, you think that would have 
humbled Nebuchadnezzar and checked his pride, and he wouldn't have had a problem with that in the future, but I'm sorry, uh, he still had this huge, big ego problem. Um, and you get, I mean, in some ways, I, I look at Nebuchadnezzar and I say, well, I kind of sympathize with the guy. If you had that much success in your life, Chuck Swindoll says this about success and failure. He says, you know, for somebody who's, for every one, for every one person who can handle success, there are like a thousand people who can handle failure. Because what does success do? What does success do in your own heart? You start saying, I'm the man. I mean, I don't know what you women say, but that, but us guys, sometimes you start walking around like, I'm the man. That's right. Everybody ought to pay attention to me. You guys are lucky to know me. You know, this is my world, and you're all just living in it, right? Let's talk about, you know, and then you're having a conversation with somebody, true narcissist here, and he says, hey, you know, I've talked about me so long now. Let's, let's just stop. Let's, let's don't talk about me anymore. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? A true narcissist, right? I think Nebuchadnezzar was falling into this category and somewhat due to his own success and somewhat due to the way the people treated him. I mean, they treated him like he was walking around like a living God walking on earth. How do you curtail a huge ego like that, right? So he says, King, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to realize that God is God and you are not him. You've been given this tremendous authority to rule, but that doesn't give you the right to go and tell God to get off his throne in heaven so that you can sit down and take his seat. You would think that after seeing a mighty miracle like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that the king would have humbled himself. He would have put aside his pride. He did say that nobody in his kingdom could trash talk the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that still didn't mean he humbled himself before God. And so now we get to the ultimate, I'll pull out an SAT word on you, the ultimate nadir for the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, which means low point in somebody's life. Chapter four, we're going to see the third way that King Nebuchadnezzar fell into pride. Now we're told to, in this last story in Daniel chapter four, that the king had another dream, right? And so when the king has a dream, we know that that means God is speaking to him, but he doesn't always understand what the dream means. And so I, I think God sets it up this way. King has this really important dream. I don't know what to do with this dream. I don't understand it. What do I need to do to go understand what the dream means? I got to go find Daniel. So the king goes and finds Daniel, and he talks to Daniel about this, and Daniel realizes the, the understanding of what this dream means, and Daniel's like, I don't want to tell you, king, this is bad news, man this is not going to go well. May the king live forever. May you never fall into this problem. May you repent right now before it's too late. And the king's like, tell me what the dream is. Tell me what the dream is, Daniel. So he says that God is going to have to humble the king one more time. His kingdom is going to get taken away from him for a time. And the king is going to have to learn in humility that heaven rules, that God ultimately rules over the affairs of men and not him, that he may be the human boss over his kingdom, but he's not bigger than God. And here it was. So the king hears that, and the king says, thank you very much, Daniel. And Daniel's okay with it. And the king goes away, and the king does not humble himself. And here we are. It says 12 months later. You can read this in Daniel 4. 12 months later... The king is now walking around on the rooftop of his royal palace. He's over in ba Babylon. He's walking around the rooftop of a royal palace. Have you ever 
seen anything good happen to a king that was walking around on the rooftop of his own royal palace? I don't think so. Not, not, nothing good seems to happen in those situations. And this is what he thought, and this is what he said. And he says, as he looked out across the city, King Nebuchadnezzar said this, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. There are many me's and my's in that sentence, are there not? And when you're filled with pride, it makes you so self-centered and arrogant. You think that you're the only one who accomplished and achieved whatever good or whatever success that happened, that you're the only one responsible for it. And in your pride, in those moments, you give no glory to God. You try to hoard and receive and sponge in all the glory for yourself. And look at the way God responded to this. He can't even finish the sentence. In verse 11 or 31 in Daniel, he says, While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and that the Most High gives these kingdoms to anyone He chooses. God put this king through some severe discipline, did He not? And finally, after seven years, can you imagine how it's, that's a long time. Where were you seven years ago? Where were you in 2012? And to think from 2012 until now, that's how long this king was out in the field learning humility, learning to, to quash down his own pride and let it not get in the way of a proper relationship with God, right? He says, You're, until you learn that the most high rules. So he, he's under severe discipline. Finally, the king humbles himself and he says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven. You know, one of the, best ways to find the antidote to pride is quit looking at yourself and get your eyes off yourself and humble yourself and look up to heaven and look up to God. And he said, I looked up to heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. By the way, those were the very words Daniel said to him way back in chapter 2. And it finally sunk in. Oh, yeah. You ever had that where you've heard a message and it's like in one ear, out the other? And then finally something happens in your life and he says, I think I heard that one time. And, and probably it's your wife next to you. And he says, I've been telling you that for 10 years, right? And, you're, and it finally sunk in through your thick skull. He says, do you, do you see the, me, do you see finally, he says, I raise my eye toward heaven. And he says, I praise the God most high and I glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And finally, in all this man's pride, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a major shift. He went from talking about himself and how great he was to now finally talking about how great God is. One of the great world conquerors was finally conquered himself by his creator. So let's talk about us today. It's enough about Nebuchadnezzar. He lived a long time ago. Can we learn from his example? I hope so. 
How do you deal with, how do you overcome the biggest enemy of your own life? How do you overcome your pride? What will it take for you to humble yourself before God? Notice I said your pride. We're not talking about a philosophical abstract here. We're not saying, you know, problem in this world, there's just too many people walking around with pride, you know, and that's just bad. Oh, yeah, all that pride out there in the world, that's just bad, you know. That's, that's easy to talk about. It's easy to go fix somebody else. We're talking about something that resides deep within you, deep within me, that pride that is there and it won't go away, that same attitude that King Nebuchadnezzar had that can creep right into your own heart. And you know about pride? Pride won't give up or go away easily. Pride is not going to go away without a nasty, prolonged fight. And it won't be a one-time mega battle either. Your battle against pride could be a daily fight, and it's a dirty fight in your life. But you know what? That fight against pride has to be won because you and I cannot have a right relationship with God if your pride is being the boss, if your pride is getting in the way and not letting God be the ruler of your life. I remember being in high school. I read this author, Graham Greene. He said this, pride is what made the angels fall. Pride is the worst of all. So you and I, we've got to confront our pride. We've got to set it aside. You can't hide it. You can't mask it for long. As they say, pride is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it except you. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He says, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God because a proud man is always looking down on things and on other people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see anything that is above you. He added, for pride is like a spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So what really? I mean, you think about, okay, fine. What is it? What is the only way? What is the solution here? How are we going to defeat pride? Of course, the only real antidote to pride is a great word called humility. Great word called humility. This author, Helen Nielsen, she cleverly wrote, and I say this a little tongue-in-cheek, she said, humility is like underwear. It's essential, but it's indecent if it shows. <laughs> James tells us what to do when we have to confront pride. He says these words. In fact, this, this ought to be the memory verse of the week. James chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. In the New Living Translation, it says it this way. When you bow down before the Lord, in other words, when you humble yourself, say, God, you're God, and I'm not. When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on Him, He will lift you up and give you honor. God is waiting to do that, but it's, he, we have to get rid of our pride before that happens. You know, a few weeks ago, right here in this in this sanctuary, in this auditorium, this gathering of God's people, I had the privilege of officiating a memorial service for one of the servants of God, one of the longtime members of this church here. His name is Jerry Millerick. Jerry, from all I understand, was a great example of humility. Somebody walked up to me at the end of that service and handed me a piece of paper. Didn't say anything. Just, I didn't even know who it was. Just handed me this piece of paper, and he says, Pastor, I want you to read this after after you get done with the service and after all this stuff. So I looked at it. I looked in my front and back of a piece of paper. I'm thinking, oh, that's a lot to read. And I put it in my pocket. I picked it up later. 
And this was what the poem was entitled. It was called, What Will Matter? What Will Matter? And I pulled a few lines out from this poem that this, this man handed me after the memorial service. He says, ready or not, someday it will all come to an end. And all the things that you collected will all get passed on to someone else. Your wealth, your pain, your temporal power, it will all shrivel to irrelevance. The wins and losses that once seemed so important will all fade away. And so, what will matter? How will the value of your days be measured? What will matter is not what you bought, but what you built. What will matter is not what you got, what you, but what you gave. It's not, what will matter is not your success, but your significance. What will matter is not your competence, but your character. What will matter is not how long you will be remembered, but by whom you'll be remembered and for what you'll be remembered. You are who you are. Friends, this is true about us. You are who you are. I am who I am because of the grace of God. And if you remember that, and if like Paul, you can have a good balance between the two, you can have good results in your life. If you get pride out of the way and you let God have first place in your life and work His grace in you, if you give thanks and honor and praise and glory to your only Creator and Redeemer, then I can tell you some great things are going to happen in your life. Other people around you are going to be blessed. The kingdom of God is going to, be, is going to advance. And God is going to get more and more glory. And that's where it all begins after all. That's just the way it's supposed to be. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And I'm going to ask you and the worship team to come up and get ready for our final song here. Um, the only antidote to pride that I know, the main antidote, the one you can't get past, you can't deal with pride unless you turn to this instead, is humility. There's this awesome song. I listened to it this morning. I was telling Hannah earlier, I said, Hannah, I heard this great song, but I heard it today and it's too late to sing in the service. But she said, we'll have it ready for two weeks from now. And we're going to sing this song two weeks from now. It's this awesome song by this young man named Colton Dixon. Colton Dixon was like the number three finalist on American Idol one year. And he's a Christian and he became a Christian singer. He wrote this awesome song and I heard it this morning. It was called More of You and Less of Me. And the lyric goes like this, more of you, less of me. Make me who I'm meant to be. You're all I want. You're all I need. Empty me of myself. You know, I, when I heard that, it, it reminded me of that Ephesians passage where, where Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. Don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I thought about that and I said, how can you and I be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're too full of ourselves, right? You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're filled with pride. And the way to get rid of the pride is humble yourself before the Lord. So I invite you to bow with me for a moment of prayer. Dear God, I pray today you'll give us a revelation and you'll, you'll show us in, in real, tangible, stark terms. Lord, show us just what an enemy to ourselves that our pride is. Help us to realize 
that all the good things that we have in our life, they all come from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And Lord, help us to say that and to believe that all we are is because your grace is there. Your grace is forgiving us. Your grace is transforming us. Your grace is shaping us into the image of your son. And so, Lord, in response to that, help us to worship and serve you alone, to serve you with humility, to serve you only. God, help us to, to take that ego that we have inside and to demolish it, to decrease it. Lord, we want to decrease so that you may increase. And Lord, whatever good happens, however you use us in the future, we'll recognize it's your grace at work in our lives and we will give you the glory for whatever good happens. God, show us how to live. Show us how to live like the prophet Micah said. Show us how to do justly and how to live and how to love mercy and how to walk humbly with the Lord our God. Show us how to do that today. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace in our lives. And we pray, God, that, that we'll be good worshipers, that we will worship you and serve you only in humility. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.